Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your two major dudes of minutia. I'm Alex Heigl, because any major dude will tell you. And we are those major dudes. That's one of the best ones yet. I am Jordan Bruntog, and I am floored by that intro. Oh, man. Wow. I was trying to think of how many Steely Dan references I could cram into this. Um, Much like Brooklyn, you owe the charmer under me. I don't know. We could have gone with Kings there. We could have gone with Dirty Works. I guess all my references are very um, can't buy a thrill heavy. Oh, yeah. Bodhisattvas of of boring facts. Wow. That's okay. (laughs) We might have to punch that one in. That's also very good. (laughs) Well, folks, as you may have gleaned from that preamble, we are talking about one of the best albums from one of the best bands of a very specific ilk. A truly (laughs) high water mark of musicianship songwriting craft and studio production from a band who named themselves after a sex toy in naked lunch (coughs) that's right folks we are talking about steely dan's asia i personally love steely dan took me a long time to do it though kind of verboten in the punk rock circles uh that i cut my proverbial teeth in um this is like a third hand story there's uh, this guy in a record shop in Brooklyn. Shout out to Human Head Records. Everyone, if you're in New York, check go to Human Head. Or check Great them out store. on Discogs. I think they're also on Discogs. Anyway, this guy told me this story about he had a friend of his, I guess, who would um, go into record stores, buy Steely Dan records. I guess like Can't Buy a Thriller, one of the ones that was like cheaper before like the vinyl boom and you know everything costs $25 now, but like back when you could get Steely Dan records for like 3 to $5. And he would pay for them at the counter, pull them out of the sleeve, 
break them in half and leave them on the counter and walk out of the store. <laughs> so that is the prevailing mood of yes. how people view Steely if Dan you were, if you were in your musical rock, ilk. Okay. Yep, that was the that was the the mood. But I mean, that's horrifying to know, me, frankly. I mean, well, now I'm hook, line, and sinker. I, you know, the jazz nerd musicianship and the laser focused production and songwriting are the, the, the just the perfect foil to the densely literate and misanthropic. <laughs> they're, they're so mean. They are Dolph very Fagan mean. is so, so mean. Yeah. And, you know, the discerning too much information listener will pick up a thread that I have about being just heinously bitter towards like being a musician in late stage capitalism where there's no damn money and no resources to do anything. And and me, on the other hand, who played bass in your band, just happy to be there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but but for some reason, like where I get mad at like David Crosby for being like, I blew through $70 million in the like the 80s and now I'm pissed off. I don't have any money like that rankles me. But for some reason, Steely Dan, I'm like, it's perfectly cool that you spent a week searching for <laughs> one guitar solo while burning through LA's top guitarists and just telling them, nope, not it. Next. <laughs> like, that's hilarious to me. No one will ever get to make records <laughs> like that again. I yeah, guess I true. guess maybe you could do it in your in your living room if you're not but if you don't like, care about making friends. I mean like Capital Studios, like you're like, yep. This is costing us $500 a day. A day? Bring in the next an guy. hour? Come on. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I don't know. Adjusted for inflation? <laughs> uh, what about you, buddy? I just, I'm stunned that there was ever a period when you weren't a massive Steely Dan devotee. I mean, it's a couple of jazz dorks with chips on their shoulders and an unlimited budget. I mean, that just <laughs> seems like... I just assumed you were jealous of anything. I mean, geez. Well, yeah, it's, it's that. Yeah, it's very okay. much that. All right, good. <laughs> I I loved Steely Dan since I was in middle school, which, as you can imagine, may be immensely popular in 2001. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, I think I heard um, Reeling in the Ears on, like, Oldies Radio, and that led me to check out yes, their greatest that, hits. And that then from, do it again pretty constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah, like yeah. the war horses. And then going to their greatest hits and then going through my dad's record collection at that point and seeing that he had most of the records. And, oh, yeah, I loved this stuff so much. I mean, I remember listening to Kid Charlemagne and Deacon Blues or something and thinking, oh, like, this is what perfect music sounds like. I, I you know, it, it was incredible. And I got to say, as I got older, the precision almost started to grade on me ever so slightly. And I feel like that's a common criticism for Steely Dan's detractors. It's almost sterile. Yeah, exactly. That's why I like Can't Buy a Thrill because that's when they're like young and Yeah, hungry. and a real and band like a, as opposed yeah, to just Becker and Fagan. Yeah, my really my only knock against them is that it's just the sterility. And I mean, this is not a new observation. I think there was the New York Times critic Robert Palmer who said that Steely Dan's music sounded like it had been recorded in a hospital ward, which is a great diss. I mean, Asia in particular, I think it's just so smooth and clear that I get sometimes kind of a bit of the uncanny valley vibe from it, which is somewhat offset by Donald Fagan's voice and his hilariously specific lyrics, which I feel like go underappreciated way too often. We'll talk about them in this episode. Um, I'm reminded of this quote from Roger Daltrey, which he says in like basically every documentary that he's a talking head in. Um, <laughs> it just sums up his approach to music. Give me a bum note and a bead of sweat any day. And obviously I love Steely Dan and have for many years, but sometimes I do have the sense that you don't hear the sweat 
Although it's obviously there. Again, like you said, spending a week to cycle through all the top session guitarists in LA just to nail a single solo. But more often I hear the cocaine. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just assume that they're gacked out of their minds in this era. I actually don't know much about like, there. Well, I, I, I think I, that their producer did say that it was a drug-free zone in the studio. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, I think, I think Fagan at one point talks about i think the biggest stress on their like partnership yeah, at one was, point was walter becker uh opioids i thought i forget he, what he, he struggled with substance abuse during the, the yeah. gun show era I, I don't know what uh, it was reportedly heroin oh damn uh, his girlfriend overdosed in their apartment oh, in Jesus. 1980 yeah good lord he was hit by a taxi in 1979 whoa God was damn. that what started it did he have painkillers for recovering I, from I don't that know. That's wild. Damn. Anyway. Well, from the mind-boggling array of 20th century music royalty involved in these sessions to the amount of days the vocalist spent perfecting a single two-word phrase (laughs) on this record to Asia's surprising second life as a treasure trove of hip-hop samples, here's everything you didn't know about Steely Dan's Asia. Asia Jin, Asia Jin, like origin. Mm. Anything there? Mm. Yes, and <laughs> <laughs> talking about Steely Dan, we are yes, Dan. Talking about Steely Dan, we're really talking about the partnership between guitarist Walter Becker and singer keyboardist Donald Fagan. Becker and Fagan played together in a variety of bands while at Bard College in Annandale on Hudson, New York. One of which was called the Bad Rock Group, and That's included a. Chevy Chase on drums. There's this amazing Rolling Stone profile from 1977 uh, by Cameron Crowe in Rolling Stone. Uh, And he asks him about Chevy Chase and Don Fagan just says, we don't remember him. (laughs) Which begins one of the many through lines of this episode, which is Donald Fagan being mean to people. In the most subtle way. They later moved to Los Angeles, staff writing for ABC Dunhill Records, and then you know, they just, you mentioned earlier that they had formed as a live band. They discard the band uh, and they begin this habit of just being like, well, who are the best people at these respective instruments in the country and how can we get them onto this record and break their spirits? <laughs> it's very <laughs> and, Phil Spector esque when he would just mm, have people play for hours and hours and hours to break down any shred of individuality in their playing. Yeah, like boot just camp. To, well, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm just imagining Arlie Ermy now in the studio being like, damn it, maggot. (laughs) Take that solo again and lean less on the mixolydian tonality. You f***ing sample. (laughs) It's a B flat seven flat nine. Maggot. Um, Anyway, they wrote a song for Barbara Streisand that came out before Can't Buy a Throw, came out before any of their records, I Mean to Shine. Do you know that song? No, no. You strike me as a Streisand guy. I'm not, very he much said, no. said, hatefully. Yeah, yeah, that was uncalled for. <laughs> Enemy of the pod, Barbara yeah. Streisand. 1972's Can't Buy a Thrill, uh, which is just jam-packed yeah. with bangers. You've got Do It Again, Dirty Work, Kings, Reeling in the Years, Brooklyn Owes the Charmer Under Me. That record establishes them as just this incredible songwriting team. Um, they were able to just sculpt bands, shape, bend bands to their will. Um, and one of the biggest 
I don't know if he's unsung, but one of the biggest heroes is this founding member, Danny Diaz on guitar, who technically was one of the founding members. He put an ad in 1970 in the Village Voice reading, uh, looking for keyboardist and bassist must have jazz chops. Holes need not apply. So Fagan uh, and Becker lied. <laughs> yeah, right. Also for around this time is Jeff Skunk Baxter. Just one of the most tremendously facial-haired guitarists of this time, and also a missile defense contractor for the government. Oh, I love that so much. Did Afterwards? You know Afterwards? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I did yeah. not. It's like if Michael McDonald was like a CIA spook, like destabilizing <laughs> South American governments. <laughs> Just garroting Banana Republic dictators and being like, oh. I'm just sort of amazed that anybody in the music industry could get security clearance and pass a background check. <laughs> oh, right. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I got a gush about reeling in the ears. That solo by Elliot Randall uh, is just incredible. According to, I forget if it was Becker or Fagan, there was an even better one that he did before the tape was rolling. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's notably um, one of the few things that jimmy page has ever said complimentary about rival musicians jimmy <laughs> page and robert plant were both big little feet fans oh, but yeah. jimmy page has gone on like repeatedly on record as being like the real in the years solo is like my favorite guitar solo of all time that makes sense he's an ex-session player i feel like yeah. he would appreciate that i don't know uh elliot randall the guy who played it would later describe his experience working with steely dan instruction <laughs> what instruction the only constant would be walter becker coming over to me right before the assistant hit the red button and saying play the blues elliot <laughs> i there's a, there's a tweet that came out right around the get back documentary that was like i need an eight-hour documentary of donald fagan and walter becker chain smoking at a mixing console and just telling session guitarists nope that's not it <laughs> anyway they followed can't buy a thrill with countdown to ecstasy pretzel logic katie lied and the royal scam before arriving at today's topic 1977's magnum opus asia uh they had stopped touring in 1974 because they simply did not like it <laughs> and they didn't tour again for 19 years it was basically the same approach taken by the beatles and brian wilson who it must be noted by the time they stopped touring had way more hits than steely tan yeah um, yeah but yeah i guess they just wanted to become a studio entity once a journalist asked Donald Fagan how they'd managed not to tour, and he said, easy, we fired all the roadies <laughs> so we couldn't go. <laughs> I think XTC too, right? Did yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Weren't they like, I don't we even don't know do if they ever anymore. quit. I almost feel like they just only tour, were in period. the studio. I think so. I recommend everyone watch the, I mean, I, man, classic albums is such a weird bummer to me that I feel like that series goes on and off streaming constantly. Like, I remember there was a point where they were on Prime and I watched all of them. Oh, they're not anymore? Uh, oh, that's a bummer. I, I watched this on YouTube. Anyway, the classic album series are incredible. The Steely Dan classic albums episode is a must watch. And in it, Donald Fagan says, around the time we made Asia, we figured out what it was we sort of wanted to do musically. We realized we needed session musicians who had a larger palette of things they could do, who were also good readers because they were coming in cold. To that end, Asia's liner notes basically read like a yearbook superlative page of <laughs> mid-century jazz, R&B, soul icons, L.A. session vets. Let's just run them down. Uh, and, and again, I'm only using their 
biggest accomplishments as a calling card. These guys' Wikipedia pages are incredible. Drummers. Paul Humphrey. Played on Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Also played with iconic jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery. Shortlist of the greatest tenor saxophone players of all time, John Coltrane. Shortlist of the greatest jazz bassists of all time, Charles Mingus. He, this guy replaced Buddy Rich <laughs> at That's one insane. point. And he was the drummer for the Lawrence Welk Orchestra, <laughs> which is feels like kind of a come down after I named all those other things. He but probably got he was paid in that more for though. six years. That's true. Uh, Steve Gadd, the true drummer's drummer, among his many, many accomplishments is the drum intro to 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon. The guy is like, he's played with every yeah. famous musician of the 20th century. He's quicker to name people he hasn't played with. Bernard Pretty Purdy. <laughs> Ah, I can't say enough great things about Bernard Pretty Purdy. He's one of the f- most famous sessions of all time. He created the Purdy Shuffle, which has been adopted by everyone from John Bonham on Fool in the Rain to Toto for Rosanna. Uh, there's a great story that Donald Fagan tells in the 60s. Bernard Purdy would show up to a session with two signs that he would set up on either side of his drum kit. One would read, you done it. You hired the hit maker, and the other would have his name on it, Bernard Purdy. The problem was with him, as Fagan explained to Don Breithaupt in the extraordinarily, perhaps to its peril, comprehensive 33 and a third entry for Asia, uh, his first or second take would be perfect. So while everyone else was still figuring out the changes, Bernard would put on his overcoat and say, that's it, I'm going home, just to overdub the other guys. (laughs) It's funny because... Uh, Jeff Berner at Brooklyn Studio G, who uh, I've worked with, had been in sessions with Bernard Purdy. What? And he he was like, that guy costs twelve hundred dollars a song, and he does not like doing second takes. <laughs> That's incredible! Wow. He also claimed to be the ghost drummer on early Beatles tracks, like thickening up Ringo's parts, which seems like a crock. I yeah. If I'm you guessing. if you if you're like the kind of dork and i say this as one of them who has spent time on the steve hoffman forums yes. which oh, is yes. like oh, almost certainly the greatest repository of like white guy boomer musicians in the world hashtag rick beato beato <laughs> um it makes twitter yeah. look like a land of civil discourse let me put it that yeah. way it is just i mean the the people are still arguing about bernard purdy who i guess has just claimed to drum on everything um, but yeah, I mean, you should just look up some videos of him cause he's hilarious. You've, have you seen the one where he's explaining the pretty shuffle and he's like, and then I discovered some air in my hi-hat <laughs> oh, yeah. psh, psh, psh. and then he starts singing his drum fills. Oh, hey, ha, ho, ho, hey, ha, ha. Anyway, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a triple and halftime, right? Triplets and halftime. That's what it basically what a bird. Yeah. With all the little, um, yeah, you put all the little ghost notes in the in the snare, and anyway, we're barely through drummers. <laughs> Rick Morota, another legendary session player who's played with everyone from Aretha Franklin to Waylon Jennings. This guy also composed the music for Everybody Loves Raymond. So one degree of separation between Steely Tan and Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> Ed Green. Played with Three Dog Night, Dizzy Gillespie, Jeff Beck, Diana Ross. Can be heard in some of Barry White's biggest hits. Jim f***ing Keltner. Keltner. Probably the most famous session drummer of the 20th century. 
Uh, just look at his Wikipedia page. My favorite Jim Keltner anecdote is that uh, also in the classic album series, I think it's Tom Petty talking about it. They were recording uh, Refugee and they were just like banging their heads again. Or maybe it's Jimmy, Jimmy Iovini who talks about it. Either way, they were like getting frustrated trying to record Refugee and they were like, ah, you know, this song still needs something else. And uh, one of them frustrated, they like open the door to the control room and they step out in the, the hallway and Jim Keltner's standing there with an egg shaker, which is the little auxiliary percussion thing that's filled with like little beads. And he's just sitting there. It looks there like a silly putty case, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's sitting there in the hallway and he's like, you know what that song really needs? A shaker part. And damn it, he was right. <laughs> so they brought him in and he plays the shaker part and Refugee sells 17 million copies or whatever. Um, <laughs> and Keltner gets his day right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Uh, also in the Asia Cut Josie, Keltner plays a garbage can lid as percussion um, buried somewhere way in the mix. You can hear it soloed at one point on the on the classic albums thing. Fagan, uh, I think in the 33 and a third, says it was his idea. He said, we were in awe of him. So anything he wanted to do was good. We didn't even think about it. We just said, quick, get Jim Keltner a garbage can lid. Which, yeah, when Jim Keltner asks for garbage can lid, you bring it you to You bring him. the man a garbage can lid. Listening on the classic albums, Doc, listening to Becker and Fagan, like, dissect the tracks at the mixing board, it's really amazing all the weird sounds that they have in there that you don't hear, and then when you hear them isolated, you're just like, what the hell is that? And, yeah. But then they explain why they put it in there. Like, there's this one part in, I think it was Peg, where they had this little, really high trebly synth synthesizer yeah, yeah that sounds like like a like a child's toy or like something that would be played in like a mall in the 70s like a, over like a <laughs> muzak track it's this weird sound and you hear it isolated you're like what the hell is that not only do i have i never heard that in there but also why would anyone ever think to use that and they explain well we thought that the horn parts needed a little more high end so we put it on there to make it a little brighter to make it it's just it's it's like a, an artist who puts shade or something to emphasize well it's like i mean you know what i'd say is like it's like rothko like coming up with his own chemically unique washes to put yeah. over his paintings where it's like yeah that's like six parts egg white to three part elmer's glue and one part airplane glue and then just painting it over all his stuff and people today are still like how the how do you do that you know, they're big, like, it just doesn't look the same. And that's the thing about this record is that, like, it was for, I guess, a long period of time, the preferred demo album in high-end stereo shops. Like, if you went in to buy, like, a $6,000 Marantz amplifier or whatever, <laughs> someone would slap on Asia and be like, you really hear Jim Keltner's trash can part on this. <laughs> uh... Chuck Rainey plays bass on... This is a real testament to Chuck and Rainey. You're going to have to bleep so much of this. I just get so excited about Steely Dan. Uh, this is a real testament to Chuck Rainey. He's like one of the only bassists on here. I think Whoa. maybe the only. It's like him and Becker. Yeah, it was like um, Becker did some. Possibly best known for his long association with Aretha Franklin. The guy has played on over a thousand recordings. It's like him and Ron Carter and Milt Hinton. Uh, who are like the most recorded bassists of of period, <laughs> full stop. Um, the peg story that's in 
classic albums. Uh, he thought the song's chorus needed a slap bass part, and Fagan and Becker, possibly because slap bass was kind of coming into vogue at the time. This is like right after. I mean, slap bass really only dates back to Larry Graham and Graham Central Station with with Sly, but also around this time you're getting uh, Brothers Johnson stuff. Louis Johnson oh, yeah. is like a huge slap bass guy, so it was kind of coming into vogue around this time. And of course, Becker and Fagan were like, "No slap bass." So what Chuck Rainey's solution was was to put up like a um, like an ISO studio uh, partition, uh, yeah, studio partition, and turn on a rotating chair <laughs> stool slightly away from them so that they couldn't see his hands from the control booth and play the slap bass part as he wanted. <laughs> I mean, you can tell, you can hear it through. I'm sure the studio headphones, like it's obvious he's doing slap bass, but. And then he it did worked. it again on Josie, right? I know that's a that's a slap bass part. Maybe that was an authorized slap bass part. Rainey's amazing. Um, I don't really understand his right hand technique. If you just like Google his some of his YouTube videos, he just does unreal. Shit. Um, yeah, and he's on a, another great example to watch him work or hear him work is the Aretha Franklin, the Amazing Grace. Mm. Keyboards. Donald Fagan plays a lot of keys on the record, but. I'm, my God, dude, they have Victor Feldman, who wrote one of the most famous mid-period Miles Davis songs, Seven Steps to Heaven. He's on that record. He also plays percussion. He plays vibraphone. And that is his extremely prominent shaker part on Do It Again. Uh, one of my, But possibly my favorite Victor Feldman story is that during a session for the Royal Scam on the song Green Earrings, they relegated him to playing a container of salt as a percussion part for an entire day. It seems like a punishment. Well, that's, I think in the Vulture, there's like a Vulture article about Celia Dan where they say it was a punishment because he was playing too, quote, out <laughs> earlier. And so they were like, play the salt shaker. Um, Come back when you've chilled out. <laughs> yeah. Other keysmen include uh, sessionist Don Grolnick, a guy named Michael O'Mardian, who has won three Grammys... Did the arrangement for We Are the World, and he played the accordion part on Billy Joel's Piano Man. Um, a guy named Joe Sample, who founded the group Jazz Crusaders, uh, played with a bunch of people, and you can hear his compositions on the Weather Channel, apparently, for many years. And Paul Griffin, who played with King Curtis, and also is on Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde and Your Beloved American Pie. <laughs> Guitar-wise, we have jazz shred extraordinaires Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenauer, Steve Kahn, and Dean Parks, along with multiple Grammy winner Jay Graydon, who, as far as I can tell, is the only guy on this list who have also made an appearance in the comic strip Doonesbury. In what context? No idea. It's just a note on his Wikipedia page. I don't know. I don't... Do you expect me to have read Doonesbury <laughs> in the past... 20 years like the first comic strip to win a pulitzer expect more from you're a highly literate guy oh wow well. mm. i was always more of a far side guy uh, that's and guess. calvin and hobbs what how did calvin and calvin and hobbs not win like a nobel prize whatever uh larry carton in particular was uh tasked with um he would get the demo tapes from fagan and becker and uh basically transcribe a lot of these parts into studio ready charts the other musicians which sounds like a thankless job uh on horns you've got a member of the blues brothers tom scott 
wrote the arrangements for this record. In two weeks, Pete Christlieb, who plays saxophone and Deacon Blues, in one take, after arriving at the studio after already taping The Tonight Show, <laughs> which he was a member of the band, and legendary jazzman Wayne Shorter, who played in Miles Davis's second great quintet, which will never cease to astound me that Miles Davis had two bands so good that they are referred to as the first and second great quintets, respectively, which also makes him the second Miles Davis sideman to appear on this record. Um, also a guy named Plaz Johnson Jr., also known as the tenor saxophone soloist on the Pink Panther theme. Jim Horn of the Wrecking Crew played with Dwayne Eddy, George Harrison, John Denver on Pet Sounds. And also oh, so played Plaz. the... Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also played the uh, iconic flute solo on Canned Heat's Going Up the Country. Uh, 20-year veteran of the Tonight Show band, Bill Perkins, a trombonist named Dick Hyde, who aside from having one of those insane... Yeah, Dick Hyde. Who had one of those insane Wikipedia entries, but he also won four MVP awards from the Recording Academy, like the I, Grammys. I didn't know you didn't know that was didn't a know thing. you could do that. Yeah, they There's, did it four that, times. That's a thing, and he won it four times. Maybe a, they retired it after him. <laughs> the Sixth Man Award. Uh, a veritable army of backing vocalists, including the aforementioned GOAT of late seventies, early eighties soft rock vocalist Michael McDonald. F***ing Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles is on this. Whoa. Uh, X. Iket, Vanetta Fields. Ex Motowner and backup session warhorse Shirley Matthews and Clyde King, who I didn't know anything about, and then I googled her in 1998. Bob Dylan's then girlfriend Susan Ross alleged that Clyde King was the secret wife of Dylan and mother of two of his children. Do you know anything about this? I know nothing about that. Has that been? I think it was just in the tabloids. No, I, I don't want to go on. There. It was just in the tabloids or anything, but it's just, it's just funny to me. Anyway, uh, Gary Katz worked with legendary producers and songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. What are the Lieber and Stoller greatest hits, Jordan? Locomotion, I know. No, the Locomotion's um, Carol oh, King. Oh, Goffin King, yeah, sorry. Goffin uh, King. Oh, I mean, uh, Hound Dog, Kansas City, Yakety Yak, Searching, Youngblood, bunch of Elvis stuff, Jailhouse Rock, God, King Creole, I think they did Stand By Me. Yeah, I mean, tons of songs. Cat's also parallel career as an A&R guy. He signed Jim Croce, Shaka Khan, and Rufus. Jimmy, he signed Jimmy Buffett. Uh, also Prince, Dire Straits, Christopher Cross, and Ricky Lee Jones to Warner Brothers. That's mind-boggling. Um, in that Rolling Stone piece, Cameron Crowe the relationship with Katz continued as like a way of a setup. And Walter Becker says, why shouldn't it? He has a mustache. <laughs> uh, in the 33 and a third book, another perhaps unsung aspect of Katz's contributions were the fact that he could play this variation of the card game uh, Rummy called Tonk that I guess the black studio musicians like knew. And they were uh, Fagan and Becker were like terrified of by their own admission, quote, terrified when uh, like Chuck Rainey and 
Bernard Pretty Purdy came into the studio and I guess Gary Katz was like, no, we're going to play Tonk and like really broke the ice. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, with all of that talent at the extremely finicky Becker and Fagan's disposal, it is no wonder Asia took over a year to make with five months spent on mixes alone. I would eat a bullet. <laughs> 13 separate mixes, right? Something like that. Good. Over five God. months, 13 of them. Forced ABC to reschedule the release date three times. Uh, one of the session guitarists, Steve Kahn, later said that in order to get a track greenlit, it had to get the okay from Becker, Fagan, and producer Gary Katz. And he said to get a track past all three of them was next to impossible. If two liked it, one would veto it just to exercise <laughs> his own sense of authority. That's what you get for having an odd number of, of votes. Yep. Guitarist Dean Parks recalled the shape of these recording sessions for the Classic Albums episode. He said we would have six-hour sessions, two three-hour sessions with a lunch break in between. We'd rehearse for the morning session, and I would have the distinct feeling that we would never get a take with this band. It would never happen. The song would probably not end up on the album, and it was all going to be failed. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> We'd go to lunch, come back, and everything was in place, and we get a lot of really good takes. Which is basically how I feel every work day between my lunch break and after. Yeah. Uh, drummer Rick Morata said, you gotta love them. You go in there, and you're just really good friends, and you'll play, and you'll try to get into it, and you'll say, that's really good. And then the next day, somebody else is doing it. A whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band. They played musical bands. A whole band would go and a whole incredible other band would come in. Can you imagine what a box set, like a true box it would set, be insane. like a Brian Wilson smile sessions type thing no. would be with this, with all the different incarnations of the bands playing all these songs? Because on a classic albums thing, they have, they still have those takes saved, I guess, somewhere in the alts. They're like, there could be a year of this stuff. Yeah. Um, It'll be Lee some Rittenauer. like Salinger type thing, like after Fagan goes. <laughs> God. Lee Rittenauer, uh told Breithaupt, amongst session players in LA, working on Steely Dan's stuff was a very big deal. You'd see guys at other sessions and they'd be asking, did your solo make it? <laughs> um, but apparently they were never the axemen for this. They would always delegate the responsibility of telling these guys their solo didn't make it to cats. Um, who I guess would soften the blows by like chatting them up about baseball and then at some point dropping in the bad news. Like, yeah, how about the Dodgers this year? By the way, that thing you spent six hours on is not making the cut. Uh, dire Straits guitarist and vocalist Mark Knopfler is uh, frequently cited by the middle-aged white guy readership of Guitar World as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Did not have a good time when the band asked him to play on Time Out of Mind from Gaucho. He recorded 10 hours plus of guitar work only to have about 15 seconds of all of that make the song's intro. I mean, honestly, that sounds like the correct ratio for Steely Dan. <laughs> he described the experience as, quote, like getting into a swimming pool with lead weights tied to your boots. And I say, good, I hate Dire Straits. <laughs> That's my one of that, one of your spicier takes. Oh, I, hate, I hate that band. <laughs> Speaking of Gaucho, is rumored that Jeff Percaro is drummer for Toto, another widely, widely well-regarded session drummers in in history. He drums on the the title track. That take is supposedly cut together from forty six 
separate takes. How do you comp a drum track from 46 takes? How long is the song Gaucho? Can't possibly be that. What is it? Three cuts per second? 532. I would assume they're playing to a click track. Wow, yeah. Good God. Uh, I mean, see, this is what I mean. It almost seems like their songs are perfect to the point where it almost seems like AI or something. Like, it, yeah. it's it's a little unnerving at points. Steve Kahn, who plays rhythm guitar in Peg, told Newsweek, <laughs> having the money and the power of guaranteed sales is a license for abuse. <laughs> <laughs> He's correct. Uh, what they might waste on one or two days of recording to get a single track. Most artists, like me, could make an entire record for that. He is correct. <laughs> I love how they spent all this money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars in the 70s, so more like millions in today's dollars, while steadfastly refusing to tour. I, mm -hmm. It's no income stream other well, than record sales. Day, the, well, yeah. back in the day, the... the, the Profit. I mean, nowadays everybody makes their only money on merch. tour, but back in the day, it, well, tour and merch. Yeah, back in the day it was inverted. You would yeah. make all your money from radio and and record. I guess they actually considered touring Asia and got as far as rehearsals right before, uh, and then they just scrapped the whole idea. Fagan later said, "We had four thousand dollars worth of musicians in the room, guys who wouldn't go out on the road for Miles Davis, literally, <laughs> and they were committed to doing this." And we, meaning he and Becker, left the room together and said, what do you say? You want to can it? And we both said, yeah, without thinking twice. Icons. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Wow. 
We'll get to Peg. Well, we're getting to Peg right now. Uh, the band went through somewhere between five and eight guitarists. Accounts differ just for the solo on Peg, which wound up being played by Jay Graydon. Uh, Donald Fagan told Newsweek, we- <laughs> A rare display of shame. We were embarrassed for them and for us. <laughs> we felt silly spending all this money for this one brief blues solo. <laughs> and yeah, I think we talk about this later. They listened to some of the outtakes for the guitar solo in the classic albums documentary and just just voices dripping with contempt. I mean, it's like they still nope, 30 years it. later at that point <laughs> or 20 years later at that point still hate what they're hearing. This is a silly aside, but uh, Jay Graydon, the guy who ended up finally playing the right peg solo had a great <laughs> quote about modern recording software and this is in uh, the newsweek piece we've cited that uh, zach schoenfeld did an amazing job writing a piece just about the guitar solo <laughs> in peg it's so great jay graden said now you can make anything perfect in pro tools but back then there was no help man before pro tools there were pros <laughs> amazing uh rick derringer of uh rock and roll hoochie-coo uh fame and hang on sloopy by the mccoys mm-hmm. he was another candidate an engineer on these sessions elliot shiner told newsweek for the aforementioned article rick derringer was there for about three or four hours we got something out of him the minute he left <laughs> that's a thing to the shakedown <laughs> yeah right he was strapped to a chair we put car battery up to his nipples and he played this guitar solo for four hours anyway he said, the minute he left, Walter looked at me and said, erase it. <laughs> <laughs> Remove it from the earth. <laughs> that guy. Um, I said, okay. You never questioned it. Um, apparently, someone told Derringer this was a technical issue, issue because in that Newsweek article, he says something about like, oh, yeah, I heard the tape was corrupted or something. Like multiple but, times he says it. But. Immediately after him in that article, the engineer is quoted in saying, they tried to get what they wanted out of Rick, and they didn't, so I erased it. So, Rick Derringer, if you listen to too much information, I'm sorry to break it to you, but they just really hated your guitar solo. It wasn't a problem with the tape. Jay Graydon said his solo took four or five hours to nail down. God love him. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, you got to watch this classic albums documentary and watch Becker and Fagan go through. I think they only play like two or three of the outtakes, but and they just, don't ma- they don't name who's playing, right? No, but I mean diplomatically. <laughs> well, it's as close to diplomacy as they get. Side note: I love Donald Fagan has the John Waters mustache. Yeah, for some, he for looks, some reason. He looks like John Waters, like pervy younger brother who's really into <laughs> chaz and like zoot suits. But yeah, during this, like they're playing all these rejected solos and just like the eye contact between the two of them. Like you can tell they're just, they want so badly to rip it apart. And Fagan says, wouldn't you hate if someone did this to you? And so finally they get to the the version that wound up on the record and Becker says, and then Jay came in and did the solo with absolutely no difficulty whatsoever. (laughs) Just brutal. There's a great line about this in Winston Cook Wilson's incredible retrospective piece for Spin for Asia's 40th anniversary. He said, like their hero, Duke Ellington, Fagan and Becker needed the identity of individual soloists to create their finished canvas, but within quite specific and refined structural limits. 
The duo, however, was not as good with people as Ellington, but they didn't have to be. From the safety of the studio booth, they could just say, try it again as much as they needed and scrap the solos they didn't like after the fact. <laughs> they were described somewhat more bluntly in Dylan Jones's 2014 piece for GQ UK as fundamentally sociopaths masquerading as benign <laughs> dictators. <laughs> Incredible quote. In, in the same piece, Becker said, we just kept adjusting our standards higher and higher. So many days we'd make guys do 30 or 40 takes and never listen to any of them again because we knew none of them were any good. But we just kept hoping that somehow it was just going to miraculously get good. <laughs> I guess Becker was, or Fagan, I think, was so fastidious and fussy that people called him mother behind his back in the studio. <laughs> Um, for Michael McDonald, whose soaring multi-tracked vocals are the pillowy clouds that drape the chorus of Peg, having to be stuck in the booth for hours overdubbing his own voice into dense harmonies meant to mimic the horn-sectioned voicings of big bands, clearly an experience that still haunts him. <laughs> um, absolutely my single favorite section from that classic albums thing, which... People on YouTube agree because they've just cut it out as an edit. Is uh, Fagan goes, let's check out his high part just to embarrass him. And Becker just goes, cool. <laughs> so they just solo by going down going, Peg, back to you. Peg, you will come back to you. Um, yeah, it's wild, man. I mean, it's not even like barbershop stuff. It it sounds like horn sections. Yeah, it's know? like four-way close harmonies. It sounds like those old, like, old radio show jingle type stuff from the 40s mm -hmm. or old silver screen era backing vocals. Which is appropriate because it's all about like a faded broad, like a silver screen, silver state, silver age. What the f am I trying to say? It's all about silver like, a screen faded, era. Yeah. Yeah. Actress. Well, so that's the theory. So the theory is that it's about Peg and Whistle. Uh, yes. who was, according to Hollywood Babylon lore, she threw herself off the H in the Hollywood sign because she couldn't get any work in the 20s or 30s, I forget. And the uh, likely apocryphal coda to this is that she had an offer letter for a new part waiting in her mailbox at home that came mm. like right after she left to go uh, on this, this fatal journey. Uh, but yeah, given those old timey harmonies, that sound is like something out of a 1930s or forties musical or radio jingles. I, I wouldn't doubt it, even though I guess Steely Dan have denied that it was, uh, written about a real person. Yeah. There's Donald Fagan will always arrive to puncture your misconceptions. And tw as of 2020, he was saying there's no hidden meaning. We just wanted a dotted half note for that spot, and Peg was short enough to fit with the music. <laughs> they wear their soullessness on their sleeves. I appreciate that. Funnily enough, given that theme, uh, the song was used as the theme music for uh, a celebrity paparazzi segment by Entertainment Tonight on their televised uh, show from 81 to 85. That's I cannot imagine how that would fit, but that's really funny because in the Dylan Jones piece for GQ UK, I mentioned a moment ago, they uh, Becker and Fagan actually cite old school television music as one of their many influences. And it's actually a really illuminating passage in this piece, which maybe goes some way in explaining why they're so finicky with their music and what exactly it was they were looking for when they were recording. 
Uh, I think this is Fagan talking. He said, we were interested in a kind of hybrid music that included all the music we'd ever listened to, (laughs) which is a high bar. So there were always a lot of TV music and things in there. It was very eclectic and it used to make us laugh. We knew something was good if we would really laugh at it when we played it back. (laughs) We liked the sort of faux lux sound of the 50s. There was just something very funny about it. I grew up in a faux Lux household, and it was a very alienating world. So for me, it had the opposite effect. Muzak is supposed to relax you, but it makes me very anxious. I thought that was a very he's, interesting insight into what motivates them creatively. I think he said multiple times, he's like, I like real jazz and fake jazz. <laughs> I guess he's talking about music when he says that. Muzak, when he says that. Um, that classic albums thing is so funny to me, because if you watch him play piano... He has such a ridiculous, weird piano technique. He raises his arm up to like yeah. his shoulder to like drop it down and play these right hand parts. Um, which I guess it's actually I read something where he talked about how much he idolized Ray Charles, and in spe- oh. and specifically the he said specifically the physicality of watching Ray Charles play piano, where he was like I'd never seen someone put their whole body into playing music that way. It's a weird digression. Um, in the 33 and the third book, Bright helped pins down the rhyme scheme of Peg. There's double verse in that as, and I gotta really push my face up against my monitor to read this. A, B, C, C, D, B, A, E, C, C, D, E. I think I said that right. Well, in Deacon Blues, verses one and three are A, B, C, B, D, E, F, F, E. Just in case you thought they were, uh, overly hard on the instrumentalists. (laughs) I also love in Deacon Blues, there's a part in that classic albums where Fagan just goes, this was when I was singing a little like Jerry Lewis, listening to his own vocals, and Becker just goes, yeah, that was a very fertile period for you. <laughs> it's their, their friendship is so like heartwarming. Their partnership is so heartwarming to me because it's just like these two guys who could clearly never, uh, aside from, I guess, their wives, like, never met anyone else they could bond with yeah yeah oh, very way. much so yeah and everyone just talks about them being able to like finish each other's sentences and obviously having this tremendously like fertile you know musical partnership but yeah it's cute it is it is and you know i mean for all their technical virtuosity and brilliant song craft i feel like their lyrics are almost underappreciated or at least the least appreciated of all their other gifts i feel like these were two beatniks who studied English at Bard, so clearly they were extremely literate intellectual guys. And the journalist Chris Morris said in a piece for Variety, quote, The art school Dan Maestros drew in a wealth of literary inspirations for their lyrics, which dealt heavily in subterfuge and misdirection in the manner of a Times Square three-card Monty game. I just thought that was such a great, intriguing way to put that. Uh, their lines are as sarcastic and biting and vicious as any punk lyric fagan later said we write the same way as a writer of fiction would write assuming the role of a character and considering they're named after a dildo in a william burroughs novel the beats obviously loom large but fagan was also a big sci-fi nerd he was a member of the science fiction book club in school which is adorable and he identified with people who use sci-fi as social satire people like cm cornbluth or ae van voigt or alfred bester was his favorite um and these were a lot of these writers came out of the socialist movement of the 30s and used their writing to criticize society 
And you can kind of see the sci-fi influence coming out on something like the opening lines of the title track, Asia, uh, up on the hill. Uh, can you do a, a Donald Fagan? Uh, I actually can. I didn't have one of these prepared. Oh, I, I, man, I, Dora's I, yeah. disappointed. <laughs> uh, up in the hill, they've got time to burn. There's no return. Double helix in the sky tonight. Throw out the hardware. Let's do it right. I mean, that sounds like... I, mean, I don't know what that sounds like, but see the sci-fi It's funny influence. because um, uh, William Gibson, who is the uh, the acknowledged father of the cyberpunk subgenre of sci-fi, I think has multiple Steely Dan references in his really? works. Yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah, good luck figuring out what those opening lines in Asia mean. And even the opening line of Deacon Blues, this is the day of the expanding man. That's supposed to be a reference to Alfred Bester's book, The Demolished Man. And then another influence in Steely Dan's lyrics, you have the black comedy of authors like Terry Southern, who did The Magic Christian and Candy, Kurt Vonnegut, Philip Roth, and especially Vladimir Nabokov, uh, familiar to most people as the author of Lolita. And he shares Steely Dan's fascination with unreliable narrators and creeps and perverts and obsessives who perform all kinds of mental gymnastics to justify their poor behavior. Nabokov's books are portraits of humans driven insane by passion. I mean, Humbert Humbert's probably the best example of that in Lolita. And you also have the Beats influence with the junkies and the criminal elements. It's all dark stuff. I mean, you got a little bit of Bob Dylan in there. In fact, I think Fagan lives or at least lived in Bob Dylan's old house in Woodstock. I had no um, idea. And uh, Steely Dan have often cited the musical satirist Tom Lehrer as a major influence. He was a, uh, a pianist satirist in the uh, 50s and early 60s, and he would have songs like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, The Old Dope Peddler, and also a song about the nuclear apocalypse called We Will All Go Together When We Go. And I just and feel like all those sound like Steely Dan song titles. To and, me. and National Brotherhood Week, which... Uh... Right. <laughs> It's just a litany of racial prejudices, the refrain of which is, and everybody hates the Jews. <laughs> I mean, again, the, the, I feel like you can see all of these elements that show up in Steely Dan's lyrics. I read somewhere that many of the characters in Steely Dan's songs seem like they should be sitting at the Nighthawks diner in that Hopper mm. painting, just lonely and slightly sinister and morose, as if they've just poisoned pigeons in the park. Um <laughs> Fagan would later admit that Steely Dan were obsessed with, quote, a culture of losers. And a good example of that's the character in Deacon Blues, this deluded wannabe jazz musician living out in the sticks. Um, ironically, they said that's the closest to an autobiographical song they ever had. It's my theme song. <laughs> and then you get Black Cow, which seems to be about a man who may be stalking his ex-girlfriend who's pilled up and seeing a lot of men at the time. And it's basically a Nabokov character. This yeah. guy's stalking his ex. I, I think I have the meaning of that song, right? I mean, their words are obviously notoriously dense. When the Farrelly brothers were making the comedy Me, Myself, and Irene in 2000, for some reason they wanted the soundtrack to just be all covers of Steely Dan songs. And they got people like Ben Folds and Wilco and Brian Setzer to contribute. The only person who turned them down was Jonathan Richman. And when the Fairley brothers pressed him on, you know, why, he said, uh, Peter, I'd like to do this, but the lyrics, I, I don't know what they mean. I never understood what Becker and Fagan were saying. And he justifiably felt like he couldn't sing songs he didn't understand. So he passed. Now we have to get into uh, hashtag Beato. 
uh, my favorite part of the, the Out of the Music Corner, my favorite part of any TMI episodes. Uh, Steely Dan leave, lean on this very specific voicing for their major chords, uh, which they called the Mew, or I guess Moo. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't take Greek. I was in a fraternity. It's the Greek letter. I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, M-U. Yeah. Uh, it is just basically a different way of voicing a major chord. Um, technically it is a major nine chord, um, because you add the second degree of the scale, that the chord is drawn from and voice it in such a way that it creates two sets of whole tone intervals, one between the root of the chord and the major second and one between the major second of the chord and the major third. So if you're in the key of C, C major chord, C, E, G, root third, fifth, the mu voicing of that would be a C, D, E, G. The crucial difference here is that in like most jazz voicings of these chords you see a, this chord tone added as a ninth and what that means is that it's stacked above the rest of those intervals so you would have a root third fifth maybe a seventh and then you would have the ninth above all of those but what the steely dan voicing does is put that tone that in this example the d the the second of the chord put that right in between the root and the third. And that creates this very dense texture that sounds like, uh, Almost I mean, dissonant. I know what's, well, yeah. Cause it's three, it's a whole tone, which is the, you know, the first three notes of the whole tone scale, which comes from like Debussy and Ravel, uh, Stravinsky. You hear Thelonious monkeys, the whole tone scale a lot. And I guess it was their way of trying to make these major chords sound like a little more interesting without adding a bunch of other extensions and stuff to them. But it's I I, I don't dude I can't think of another pop band that has a specific chord voicing associated with them. That's wild. They're, it's also easier to play that way too. I mean, you don't have <laughs> to do true. the it lays, huge hand. You have to spread your yeah, hand really wide. It lays under the nine. keys. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I, I've I've been I was unable to find where they exactly named this after. I found one forum reference where they they said they jokingly named it after um, one of the opioid receptors in our brains, <laughs> which uh, as a way of like poking fun at a drug reference. But uh, I wasn't able to find any very of that i think it was uh a critic talking at the opening of the uh speaking in the opening of the classic albums documentary i, I can't remember who but i remember they were saying you know think about silly dan is that they were not a pop band with prog jazzy pretensions and they weren't jazz guys slumming it in the pop world they really were trying to make this this fusion is the only word I can think of. I mean, it's something that was really new that was sort of in between. And speaking of, I mean, I feel like this chord in a strange way sums it up. I mean, if you were trying to do like serious hardcore jazz, you would have some really complex, like B flat major seven, you know, with a, with a 11th, these are, these are fairly common major chords that you'd find in all sorts of run of the mill pop songs with a little extra something just to make it, make it pop a little something different. And that's, that's Steely Dan. That's the, that's the fusion. That's the middle ground. Speaking of insane charts, Asia, the, the song <laughs> took three music stands to hold the 16 pages of notated music for each one of the guys who played on this. 
Incredibly, it came together in less time they allotted for it. They planned to rehearse an entire day before going to record it, but they changed their mind after getting through one rehearsal take of this. Uh, Becker told a guy whose, I guess, official title is Steely Dan historian, Brian Sweet, in 2011, he said, Steve Gadd, being a fantastic drummer, is a fantastic sight reader and didn't really need to rehearse. Neither did the rest of the band. Gadd took... I've heard two takes to uh, record his solos that are that, that take up the break in that song. First ever drum solo in a Steely Dan song. Edited together in the final mix. And I guess Becker's only... Just like play the blues, Becker's direction to him was just play like hell. <laughs> and I guess his, his playing was so crazy in the studio that the other musicians stopped looking at their own charts and were just like drawn to him and f***ed up their own takes. Which tracks, yeah. Um, months later, this is so funny, Ultimate Classic Rock has this feature when they were mixing. Uh, Katz, Gary Katz told uh, Ultimate Classic Rock that he was playing these mixes for, because as you recall, this took 137 years to mix. Um, Gary Katz said he was mixing this and played Steve Gadd the song, Asia, which Steve Gadd played and soloed on. And Steve Gadd was like, well, those drums sound great. Who plays on that? <laughs> Did he really, or was he just looking for compliments? Well, who knows? Who's, yeah. who's, who's to say? The hilarious thing to me is that Becker and Fagan, I guess, didn't like Steve Gadd's playing at first. They thought it wasn't laid back enough. Um, and it's interesting, their thoughts on... We talked earlier about how they didn't want slap bass because it was too in vogue at the moment and just, just felt too, too showy. But I guess they're thoughts on drumming during this period were really influenced by disco. They really kind mm. of liked this rigid lockstep tempo of disco drummers. Donald Fagan told GQ UK in 2014, they had all these records that were just whack, whack, so perfect. The beat never fluctuated. And we didn't see why we couldn't have that too, except playing this incredibly complicated music. And the drummer would go and play a great fill or something and come exactly back at the perfect beat at the same tempo. Yeah. It's funny because, like, you know, all these guys are a great example of how you can play in time but place the beat differently. Like, Bernard Purdy is a metronomic drummer, but he's a little bit further back. Steve Gadd is a metronomic drummer, but he's a little bit on the beat, maybe even pushing a little. He's just such a clinic in musicianship, this, this f***ing record. Speaking of that, saxophonist Wayne Shorter, along of his own career as a leader in the jazz world, but also of the aforementioned second great Miles Davis quintet. Uh, he initially declined to play the solo in this song when Fagan and Becker reached out to him, but they asked Dick LaPalm, who's the manager of the Village Recorder, where they were recording this, um, I guess he knew Wayne Shorter from when Wayne Shorter was playing at Weather Report, and they were like, can you put in a good word for us? And uh, Dick LaPalm was basically like, to Wayne Shorter was like, these guys are jazz dorks. Like, it'll really make their day if you come in and play on their little record, their cute little record. And uh, they sent him a chart. And when he got to the studio, when he got to the studio, he warmed up not on his saxophone, but by playing scales on the piano for half an hour, which I love. Uh, and he's got this very short part in the classic albums documentary, but he talks about how he found them corny because they were so nice to him. Um, I guess because in the neighborhood where he grew up in and also with Miles Davis, and he's one of these guys who just does a Miles Davis impression, like unprompted. 
he says Miles Davis is like, you can't give everything away. Don't give everything away. Uh, yeah, and and so he was like, oh, these guys are weird. They're being too nice to me. Because uh, La Palms is that Donald Fagan had been showing up in t-shirts and like jeans. And then when Wayne Shorter was there to play, he showed up in a starched white shirt, uh, which is adorable. It's the um, only person he was ever nice to. I know, right? They will, well, they wanted Tony Williams to drum on this song. Um, and Tony Williams is also a member of the second great quintet, which would have made between them and Victor Feldman, three Miles Davis sidemen on this record, which I think is amazing. Dick LaPalm also tells this amazing story about an engineer at the studio by the name of Lenise Bent, who came to him one morning and asked to be taken off of these sessions because <laughs> Becker and Fagan had spent six hours the previous night choosing comping takes for the phrase, well, the... Just a two-word phrase in the song Home at Last. The full lyric is, well, the danger on the rock has surely passed. And she told him, Dick, I'm gonna do the I'm gonna do the voice. Dick, I got I gotta get off the Asian session. They worked on the words well the for six hours last night. All they did was work those two words for hours. I I gotta I gotta get off the session. Hilariously, in that GQ article, it's claimed that they spent four days on it, not six hours. Anyway, La Palm, La, La Palm, Palm told, uh, Palm told Ben, he convinced her to stay because she was like, "You're going to be working on an iconic album," and he was right. Must have been even worse for Donald Fagan because I guess he, like a lot of artists, says that he hates the sound of his own voice, so he had to listen to himself sing those two words. For somewhere between six hours and four days. Um, he used to request that his scratch vocals be turned down when they were listening to early playbacks of the demos because he just didn't want to hear himself. And uh, and John Lennon was another one who hated his vocals too. That's why uh, a lot of his solo stuff is all drenched with that Elvisy slapback. He just always wanted some kind of effect on his voice because he just hated the- how he sounded. Is it the Leslie on Tomorrow Never Knows? Well, that was more because he wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama chanting mm. from a, a mountaintop. That was that who, was a more specific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, this Lenise person isn't the only one who couldn't deal with Becker and Fagan's brand of perfectionism. I guess when it came time to mix, uh, an engineer named Bill Schnee just couldn't handle the constant. What about this? What about that? Again, this was remixed 13 times in five months. And he later said, it became very obvious that we were both getting frustrated. And in the end, we just shook hands. And I said, good luck with it, guys. <laughs> it's going to be a great album, uh, which is... Good night and good luck. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a question for you. Mm. More of a dumb thought experiment than a question. This was recorded on 24-track, two-inch tape on a cap stainless machine, which kept the tape even more crisp because prior to this tape had to be dragged across the little metal tape head, which inevitably degrades the tape to some degree. So much of the sound of this record, I assume you would know better than I is because they had so many tracks. They could, you know, mic up the drum kit with six or seven different mics, make the mix incredibly precise because they had all these tracks to just to make like, okay, this is a track just for, you know, the kick drum or something. I mean, right. How, how do you think Steely Dan would have sounded if they were making records a decade earlier on like a four track? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you can, 
some of my favorite sounding records of all time are those Blue Note records mm. that are well, like the Rudy Van Gelder stuff uh, recorded in, um, I think, Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. He was like a famous, famously engineered a lot of those jazz records. And I'll say that I think they could have gotten those scratch tracks or the, the basic tracks, like the rhythm tracks and everything, like really good. But no, you can't bury a trash can lid in the mix on a tape recording the same way you can digital. Anyway, there you go. (laughs) Short answer, no, with an if. Long answer, yes, with a but. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm nowhere near as proficient in music theory as you are, but purely from a listener's perspective, I want to talk about the chord changes on this record because they're so yeah unusual and unexpected. We talked a bit about this on the Hey Ya episode, but there are certain stock phrases and progressions used in Western music that give you a sense of where the melody and the chords are heading. And after hearing music all of our lives, it just becomes second nature. And, you know, we just can intuit where a song's going to go when we hear a, a, a pattern. We just, we're humans. We look for patterns. And the most interesting songs are the ones that surprise us by resolving in pleasing but unexpected ways. And the pleasing part's where it gets tricky because you often run the risk of coming up with something dissonant and ugly. But when it's done right, it's really amazing. And you see that again and again on Asia. Think of the title track, that I run to you, that moment. That melody could go anywhere from there. There is no hint as to like where the song could go in just that little short phrase. It's beautiful enough to lure you in, but it gives absolutely no indication whatsoever about where the song's going next, which keeps you interested and curious. And that's, you know, all the best music. It's really wild. That one in particular, like just that phrase goes F, G, D flat, C. It moves a whole step and then a tritone and then a half step. And that's how this whole song goes. I mean, the 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 progression moves in whole steps and then it moves in half steps and a tritone. It picks like some of the most weirdly dissonant intervals. Yeah. But it works. It, that, yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, oh, you don't, you don't Steely Dan whips. Well, yeah. I mean, and just all the key shifts and unresolved changes give it this edge that keeps it from veering into Muzaki territory, which, mm-hmm. again, said at the top of the episode, is kind of the kind of a hazard given how precise the recordings are on this. That edge comes through not only in Fagan's idiosyncratic voice and his kind of dark lyrics, but also these unsettled, unresolved chord changes. I think it's really like an important part of the blend. Um, Unoriginal critics over the years have occasionally saddled Steely Dan with having popularized the so-called smooth jazz genre, subgenre, whatever you want to call it, uh, or at least showed that there was money in smooth jazz. And Fagan has a really fascinating insight on this in this Dylan Jones GQ piece that we keep citing. He cited Hate 19, which isn't on Asia, but it's still a huge song of theirs off a of gaucho. I just thought it was interesting to see this song through Donald Fagan's eyes and see uh, the intention of these sonic tricks that he uses. He and Becker are always sort of reluctant to talk about their actual the actual meaning of their lyrics. So this seemed like a rare moment of, of as close to candor as we're going to get. Fagan said, a lot of the effects we got were intended to be comic, like Hey 19 from 1980's Gaucho. We were in our 30s, still saddled with these enormous sex drives and faced with the problem that you can no longer talk to a 19-year-old girl because the culture has changed. <laughs> yeah, that's why. 
That's set against <laughs> an extremely polite little groove. And then the chorus is set to jazz chords. And when you play them on electric instruments, there's a flattening effect, a dead kind of sound. And it's scored for falsetto voices, which adds to the effect. To me, it's very funny. Other people find it nauseating. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I don't know why, but uh, I found this kind of sad. Danny Diaz, guitarist Danny Diaz, solo on Asia, is the last time any founding member of the band played on one of their records. That's mm. right. Yeah, he was the guy who started the band and invited Becker and Fagan in, and they kicked Becker him out Fagan, by yeah. their own admission. They took over the band. Yeah, I don't think I realized that for the earlier part of their career, they really did view themselves as a proper band, and it, you know, it wasn't until like '74 with Katie Lai that they shifted to mostly studio players. Um, I yeah, I just assumed they were always sort of a, a faceless studio group. Um, did Becker and Fagan play? anything on gaucho that's a good question i don't know that's kind of a blind spot for me as i mentioned i really like can't buy thrill i don't know a ton about gaucho the title track for my money is one of the worst songs they ever did it sounds like it sounds like the family ties theme to me like it seems like an 80s sitcom (laughs) theme i've never liked that album or i've never liked that song it's got some good good songs on it actually really just babylon sisters and hey 19 now that i look at it uh and Denny Diaz, though, dude, Bodhisattva to me is, oh, his, yeah. is his is his triumph. I mean, my God, dude, rips. Anyway, 
So speaking of names, what's in a name? Uh, speaking of names, where, do, where the hell does Asia come from? The most commonly accepted explanation, the one that I've seen Fagan giving the most often, is that it was the name of a Korean woman who married the brother of one of his high school friends. But the most that I've been able to pin down of that word in Korean uh, is as a sort of like repeated phrase, like um, like a sports cheer. Like you would say Asia, Asia in Korean I, I, at the end of like a long sports chant. It's kind of like bring it on or like come get me. Or uh, if you're like wow. a soccer hooligan, like uh, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Like that, that sort of a thing. Um, but as a name. Is, that, is come and have a go if you think you're hard come enough. Come and have a uh, go if you think you're hard enough. Yeah, it is. Actually, there's a great werewolf movie called Dog Soldiers. Uh, and one of the guys is like a, like a lower class hooligan character. And he says that to one of the werewolves. Um, and I Googled it because I didn't know if it was like, I thought I didn't, I thought it was just a line for that movie. Apparently it is like a thing like Northern English, Irish and Scottish soccer hooligans yell to other hooligans <laughs> anyway uh pitting the origins down of asia as a name is trickier according to names.org multiple people peg it as an african word that means high priestess while one person from croatia said it means night bird which is really funny to me because donald fagan's well-regarded solo album containing the hit igy is called the Nightfly. One of these oh, other yeah. naming, baby naming etymology sites, mom.com, uh, has it originating from the Greek to mean forest goddess. Babynames.com IDs it as being of Indian origin and meaning to drive or propel, from which apparently derives its idiomatic translation in Hindu and perhaps its literal translation in Sanskrit to mean goat. Just think about if Asia was just called goat. <laughs> I mean, many people would say that Steely Dan are goats. Sure. Well, after all that, perhaps racistly, the cover photo doesn't even feature anyone Korean. It's Japanese people. Uh, it was shot by a Japanese photographer named Hideki Fuji. The woman on the cover is a Japanese model named Sayoko Yamaguchi who was uh, named one of the six top fashion models in the world by Newsweek. The year the record came out, didn't know Newsweek was keeping track of that, but that is their second appearance in this podcast. Friend of the pod, Newsweek. Uh, <laughs> uh, Asia Brown, who's the mayor of Compton in California, was apparently named after this song um, since her mom was a fan of Celia Dan. Well, 2020 WNBA MVP with the Las Vegas Aces Asia Wilson told an interviewer that uh, on NPR that she was named after the song because it was her dad's favorite. So there's that. <laughs> also, Asia Pecknold, who's Robin Pecknold's sister and manager of Fleet Foxes. There you go. Three, three f***ing Asias. Bet you didn't think you were getting that out of this. <laughs> um, convinced of this record's merit, Katz managed to persuade Fagan and Becker to do a little more work promoting this one. Uh, to wit, any work <laughs> because they'd never done it before, but also taking a meeting with notorious power manager Irving Azoff. Is he a friend or an enemy of the pod? Well, considering he's behind the uh, one of the shows I'm working on, gonna say friend. Well, a friend of the pod, Irving Azoff. Uh, he Please told don't Cameron hurt Grove. my kneecaps. 
<laughs> Please don't kill me. Uh, Fagan told Cameron Crowe, we were ready to blissfully go through life without a manager. <laughs> yeah, Irving Azoff, uh, huge power player. He managed the Eagles and was famously referenced by Don Henley with the immortal line, he may be Satan, but he's our <laughs> Satan. Uh, Aesop's strategy for the record was simple but effective. He called all of his record store distributor buyer contacts and he offered them this album for a dollar off the list price, but that they could still sell it for retail. I think in the article he says they he offered to sell it to them at six ninety eight and they could sell it at seven ninety eight. And he said they all bought two, three, four times as many as normally. And I told them that offer would last two weeks, which worked, you know, give people a limited amount of time for a discounted price. That's just basic sales. Uh, Cameron Crowe asked him in that interview, he's like, hey, can you put me in contact with the guys? And uh, Azov says they could be anywhere. They haven't returned any calls in weeks. When those guys go underground, they disappear. I get no special privileges. They probably don't even realize they have a huge album. <laughs> they truly don't give a damn. Not give a no, no. They were <laughs> notorious for hating interviews. Uh, when the record label requested that they up their profile, they responded by including a fake interview with each other as liner notes. <laughs> their whole persona is that they're, you know, the original hipsters. They're precocious suburban kids on the hunt for weed, jazz, and beat literature. And you read interviews with them, uh, unlike the rest of the music industry who try to prove how utterly sincere they are, they seem to like almost get off by presenting themselves as insincere. And it shows up in their lyrics, too. I mean, they're often dispassionate and sarcastic. And the writer Dylan Jones had this great line. Fagan always seemed like he was singing with one eyebrow raised, which is... I mean, my favorite is Reeling in the Years. You've been telling me a genius since you were 17, and all the time <laughs> I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. <laughs> Everybody knows that guy, though. Everybody oh. knows somebody like that. Uh Dylan Jones also calls Fagan a professional grouch. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, Fagan and Becker do not seem like likable people. They're just sneering at the world while spending ungodly amounts of money on their musical whims. Even during their time in L.A. recording, they were always extremely detached from the music scene. They rented houses out in Malibu away from everyone. They privately referred to L.A. as Planet Stupid which I find hilarious. <laughs> uh, they claimed that they had always considered themselves New Yorkers because, as Fagan later told Musician Magazine, New York is the depository for misfit Americans. There's a reason that we're here and why we don't live in Cincinnati. <laughs> and Steely Dan uh, just basically perfectly fused West Coast cool with East Coast cynicism. As one critic said, they're the Eagles meets Woody Allen. I love fair. that. Yeah, very fair. And this is probably why they never wore the mantle of fame very easily. It just went against their whole psyche. They kind of needed to be the, uh, you know, the wise guys at the back of the class that were just making fun of everybody. Steely Dan have often been described as a major band behaving like they were a cult act, which I feel like is a very telling way to view their canon. Uh, and maybe that was the secret to their success. It made people feel cool by listening to them. I never did, but... <laughs> Asia was, in fact, huge, at least on their standard of success. Within three weeks of coming out, it had reached the top five of the Billboard 200. 
ultimately peaked at number three to become the band's highest peaking album on the chart, uh, eventually going double platinum. Right on spin that it was their only album to break a million copies, which I find really surprising. But I don't know. Again, I guess I can't imagine like Katie Lied or Pretzel Logic going platinum. So maybe not. I guess it might have been. I mean, singles and greatest hits. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like can't buy a thrill maybe but yeah. that could have been singles though because do it again and and real in the years real in the years would have been singles yeah. yeah anyway peg the first single nearly cracked the top 10 but stayed on the chart for 19 weeks uh tying with ricky don't lose that number and hey 19 as steely dan's longest running chart hit deacon blues the second cracked the top 20 and josie went to number 26 uh just a hilarious, for instance, of where Celia Dan found themselves at the time. The Village Voices 1977 Paz and Jop poll, which was, that was a critics-only poll, right? I think so. It was like the thing was just like a survey of the top critical responses of the year. Asia went number five in 77, surrounded by Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. Elvis Costello's My Aim is True. Graham Parker and the Rumor, The Jam, Television's Marky Moon, The Ramones' Rocket to Russia, and The Talking Heads. So that's like three icons of New York City downtown cool. One ground zero for UK punk. And Graham Elvis Parker. Cost- and, Gra- <laughs> and also Graham Parker. <laughs> Just <laughs> if you wanted the illustration of how out of step they were. There is a small dissenting note, though, from Robert Criscow, of course. Uh, he he was a mostly positive review, but he described some of the riffs as too effing tasty. He was correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you're right. This was the year of punk and disco, and it's hard to stress just how incredibly weird this album was for its time. Michael Duffy's review in Rolling Stones set the tone for many of the criticisms for this album and the band. Uh Asia will continue to fuel the argument by rock purists that Steely Dan's music is soulless and by its calculated nature, antithetical to what rock should be. How do you feel about that? Uh, it is not rock music. Okay. But like, I don't think they're... Uh, I mean, it's not rock is this music. rock in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame definition uh, of yeah, I mean, it's not Chuck popular Berry. music? It's not Chuck Berry, dude, but like, it's got a backbeat. I mean... You can dance to it. I give it an eight. <laughs> The kids can just got a beat and the kids can dance there. No, I mean, it, interestingly, it is a very, they are sort of frozen in time because they are very much the white hipster revolution of the 50s, exemplified mm. by like Norman Mailer and William Burroughs and the Beats. But they also got like, you know, real deal black musicians to play on these records, man. Yeah. I mean, they have fucking. Purdy. Chuck Rainey and Bernard Pretty Purdy and Wayne Shorter, like those are their peers just in black music. So in a way, they are kind of they are what rock and roll was. Like yeah. they are a fusion of white culture and black culture. And yeah, it's very clinical, but I don't know. That's what it is. And this was only like 20 years after rock became a thing. I mean, it's it's also you know, I thought about this in the Grease thing, like, I feel like rock and roll, as we really think of it as a uniquely American thing, doesn't really get codified until the 60s. Like, a lot of 50s rock and roll is still extraordinarily white, because it's coming from country music and rockabilly. Like, we didn't really let, 
I mean, like, everyone talks about Rocket 88, and everyone talks about, like, you know, soul music and doo-wop, but, like, those things don't really get integrated until yeah, that was the race 60s. music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was completely separate. That stuff really doesn't get integrated until the 60s, you know? Right? Am I am I out of pocket in saying that? No, that's that's fair. I think towards the late fifties, it started to to cross over a little bit more. But I mean, so you'd see it in in things like the girl can't help it. That I should check this, but the first big budget rock movie, the one with mm. um, Jane Mansfield and Tom Yule, yeah. it was like big Technicolor widescreen kind of deal. And you had I mean, Little Richard did the theme for that, and yeah. so I mean, that was a big Hollywood movie. So, I mean, it, it started by the end of the decade, started seeing it more Ed Sullivan, the nightly Sunday night variety show type stuff. But yeah, I mean, I do, your, your point's well taken. It was definitely. I mean, it's 15, still 15, 20 years. Yeah. You know? Um, anyway, uh, the only Grammy this record won out of its many nominations was for engineering, which is, you know, funny considering, as we talked about earlier, it was for years the preferred demo disc of high-end stereo shops everywhere um and i must always as I, as I always do note that in 2010 the library of congress selected asia for preservation in the national recording registry i always just think that's funny you do I mean, yeah. it's steely dan is in the library of congress <laughs> Well, I have a brief It Belongs in Museum segment. Uh, apparently, the masters for the title track of Asia and Black Cow have gone missing. And that makes it impossible to do surround sound versions of these tracks. And I imagine it makes it really tough to remix, too. Uh, in the liner notes for the stereo remaster of the Asia album in 1999, Steely Dan offered a $600 reward for information leading to their return. Oh, Seems chintzy. like so little. Yeah. That's like Lauren Michaels like offering the Beatles $3,000 to reunite. Like that's that's almost seems insulting. Um you touched on this at the top of the episode, but I was really unaware of the anti-Dan sentiment. Uh or at least that it was as strong as it was. The Pitchfork review for 2000's Two Against Nature was pretty savage. Uh, oh yeah. It, it opens with if you're a regular Pitchfork reader, why are you even so curious about Steely Dan in 2000 before concluding with people fought and died so our generation could listen to something better than Steely Dan? <laughs> Dude, who, who, who fought and died? Okay. Well, there's then the Yamo, there's the 40 year version line too about where they come after Michael McDonald for Yamo be there. If I have to hear Yamo be there one more time, I'm going to Yamo burn this place to the ground. I love Michael McDonald. Why didn't you ask me to do a Michael McDonald impression? Oh, can you? We'll do it. Um, well, there's. Uh, well, now you're choking. Well, yeah, now I'm choking. <laughs> yeah. I just go. Back, yeah, you did that. Back to you. Just the Rick Moranis SCTV bit where he's like, oh, he's yeah. like literally driving from studio to studio just to like belly up to a mic and be like, oh. <laughs> I told you my my uh, Michael McDonald's story. He, I don't think so. No, I don't really. Know oh man, no. I thought I told you this. He had gotten back with uh, the Doobie Brothers, or he was singing with the Doobie mm. Brothers. I don't know which, and they were going on on tour. And Taking I met, it to the they, streets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. And they were, in fact, taking it to the streets. They were, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I was interviewing all of them, and whatever the, the lead guy from the Doobie Brothers, he was in a pissy mood, and he kept, like, 
I would ask a question and he would always intentionally like misinterpret it to try to like, mm. I, I don't know, just he wanted an excuse to go off on somebody and to like put somebody in their place. And I was like 23 and I'd spent days researching them as I always do. And I knew what mm-hmm. I was talking about, but for some reason he was just in a bad mood. And then finally, after this happening like three times, Michael McDonald was like, come on, Tommy, you know what he meant? <laughs> Oh, and then he like went up to me afterwards and like kind of like was extra nice to me, which I took as an apology, which is oh, very nice. I love that so yeah. much. No, he was really oh. sweet. Sweet Michael McDonald. Oh, that makes me love him so much. Um. Anyway, though, hipster critical appraisal of the album has swung back around with a new generation of musicians, notably Mac DeMarco. When I saw Mac DeMarco at Pitchfork Festival, he just closed his set with a. Just the outro section of Reeling in the Years. Like he played Did he play all of his it or hits. just to the PA? No, he played all of his hits and then the whole band just went into the banana, like just the outro. <laughs> That's the outro awesome. Section. It was incredible. Um anyway, uh for a long time the biggest shadow this record cast in popular music was a, a treasure trove of samples. Peg was sampled by De La Soul for their iconic nineteen eighty nine record Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah, that's how a lot of DJs, I think Mark Ronson, uh, yeah. being one of them, first came across Steely Dan. And Black Cow famously sampled, do you know what a, do you grow up drinking Black Cows? No, actually, surprisingly, that's a bit of like mid-century Americana kitsch that- That's a thing my a parents diner. did. I grew up, yeah, Coke and milk or, uh, or root beer and milk, black or brown cow. It's like a soda fountain thing. Oh, I thought it was like a like a root beer float, but instead of root beer, it was Coke. Although I guess it's a regional difference thing. I've heard both. Yeah, I I think you do milk instead of just ice cream, so it's not like uh, okay. it's not like the solid ice cream. It's just uh, anyway uh, sampled twice prominently, once by Beyonce on the uh, J Ty remix of 2004's "Me Myself and I," and once more famously and more depressingly by uh, for the song "Deja Vu Uptown Baby" by Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Uh, in exchange for clearing the use of that sample, Steely Dan requested not just a hundred and fifteen grand up front, but a hundred percent of publishing royalties, which makes them the sole credited songwriters on that song. Peter Guns called this a stick up, which yeah, it's not wrong. Uh, Fagan told GQ that Tarek and Guns technically also stole the sample from another hip hopper. Uh, so quote, the sample had already been licensed for Puff Daddy and Maze, which is really funny to me because this would have been right around the whole Puff Daddy and Maze cultural dominance moment. Um, Fagan goes on, we actually heard that Puff Daddy was riding around in a limo with Lenny Kravitz and went crazy when he heard it, saying they stole my sample. Uh, That's my version of a Peter Jackson eight-hour documentary. I need eight hours on Puff Daddy and Lenny Kravitz riding around in a limo in 1997 being upset that their Steely Dan sample was (laughs) taken out from under their feet. I guess Becker and Fagan were given an award from ASCAP for this Peter Gunn song that they didn't actually write. Uh, but ASCAP suggested they stay home and mail them the plaques because there had been some violence the year before. And they were basically afraid that Peter Guns would have some kind of clash with Puff Daddy and Maze. Or maybe he would clash with Becker and Fagan. I don't know. But honestly, that would be a hilarious, sad postscript to Steely Dan if they were shot to death in 1997 by a one-hit wonder hip-hop band. 
Uh, though there are dozens of other examples, probably the most famous dance sample in recent memory was Kanye West pulling Kid Charlemagne for 2007's Champion. Although um, that beat was actually built by his producer, Brian Alday Miller. Uh, there's a really cute story behind this. Uh, Fagan said, Kanye actually sent us a sample of his tunes, and frankly, Walter and I listened to it, and although we'd love some of the income, neither of us particularly like what he had done with it. We said no at first. Then he wrote us a handwritten letter that was kind of touching about how the song was about his father, and he said, I love your stuff, and I really want to use it because it's a very personal thing for me. It was such a good letter, we said, all right, go ahead, and we made a deal with him. Aww. Well, the only person that... Becker and Fagan have been nice to other than Wayne Shorter. It's Kanye. <laughs> um, sadly, Walter Becker passed away in 2017 at 67 of esophageal cancer. The New York Times wrote in his obit that with Steely Dan, Becker changed the vocabulary of pop in the 1970s and tributes to him poured in from artists as wide ranging as Mac DeMarco, Beck, Questlove, Nia Rogers, the Mountain Goats, John Darnielle, Best Coast, Bethany Cosentino, Jason Isbell, Talib Kwale, and producer Just Blaze. On the other end of the spectrum, they've also been praised by Judd Apatow, who's called them a bottomless pit of joy. Yet, I cannot imagine that Donald Fagan gives a damn about any of this. Nope. Uh, <laughs> once a Milwaukee reporter asked him, or forced is the word I actually see used more often, uh, Becker to listen to Grizzly Bear, who are a group who've cited Steely Dan as a major influence. Becker did and pronounced them, quote, horrible, and said that he should, quote, drop science on them. <laughs> Which I don't even, I don't even fully get what that means, but that's brutal all the same. Uh, he can be vicious. Uh, when Rolling Stone asked him to keep a diary for his trip to Coachella, he wrote, After hearing a few bands, I noticed that many of them sounded a lot like the folk rock bands of the 60s that were born in the wake of Bob Dylan's electric switchover, only louder and dumber. At least hip-hop, which is tough for me to listen to, has got a few genuine eccentrics with street energy and something to say. In Fagan's own tribute to his creative partner, he wrote that Becker was smart as a whip an excellent guitarist and a great songwriter. And he added that while Becker was cynical about human nature, including his own, he was hysterically funny, adding that he had the knack of creative mimicry, reading people's hidden psychology and transforming what he saw into bubbly, incisive art. As far as Fagan is concerned, that is practically a full on grab the handkerchief, snot nosed, tearful, Oscars tribute. Yeah. Uh, the aforementioned missile defense consultant and guitarist Jeff Skunk Baxter <laughs> quipped in 1995, a band like Steely Dan couldn't get arrested today. Uh, he was right. <laughs> William S. Burroughs, who you will remember the band named themselves after a sex toy in Burroughs' Naked Lunch, was asked about Steely Dan in 1977. He says, these people are too fancy. They're too sophisticated. They're doing too many things at once in a song. That should have been their greatest hits title. Too many things at once? In a song, yeah. Um, I love this quote from Walter Becker. Uh, he was talking to Time Out in New York in 2011. He said, that's sort of what we wanted to do. Conquer from the margins. That's hmm. a good Steely Dan lyric. Back of the uh, class. <laughs> 
find our place in the middle based on the fact that we were creatures of the margin and alienation. And I think that's why I love this band and this record so, so much. Um, there's such a perversity to these two weirdos who were, they were so close enough that they sh- seemingly shared a brain and they crafted all of these airtight songs with a rotating cast of some of the best musicians in the world, all grounded within their little neurotic world of jazz and sex creeps and higher education literature. And they might have been weird cranks who I wouldn't have wanted to spend a second with, but they were consummate artists. And I am so happy that the world has caught up to that view of them. As they sang in Reeling in the Years, you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand. The things you think are precious, I can't understand. Thank you for listening, folks. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.